Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. This is episode number four, recorded on January 4th, 2019. Title, the podcast is now available in multiple regions. Welcome back, guys, from the, the holiday season. Did you guys all have a great new year? Yes, pretty good. Excellent. I got more sleep than I have in years. <laughs> that seems almost hard to believe. <laughs> so we uh, we have a couple items from follow-up from our end-of-year show. Uh, let's maybe talk about those real quick. So we talked last time about the Jedi contract, which is Amazon and Azure and Google and Oracle's bid to win the DoD business for the cloud. Um, and it was one of our top articles of 2018 just because of the controversy around it. Oracle is suing um, Amazon Web Services and the government over what they consider it to be conflicts of interest. And since we recorded, Mother Jones had a fantastic article around the contract and why it's riddled with conflicts of interest and what those actually are. It was definitely... And some interesting things I did not know when we recorded last time around one of the people involved apparently worked at Amazon Web Services and then went to the government where he worked for a while and then has not gone back to Amazon Web Services, which looks a little bit fishy. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, he had real uh, influence on, I think, on the requirements for the vendors, which is, I think, the sticking point. And then there was another person who apparently was a known conflict of interest and actually had to get approved by the ethics committee to be able to work on the bid. Um, and apparently was working on the bid uh, or working on the requirements for the bid without having that approval from the ethics committee. So there's definitely more fire than uh, smoke in the story. I would just, I was always curious to know, cause I've been, I've never been involved in, uh, uh, especially on the government side, but really on either side of large government bids. I, I wonder how common or uncommon this is. Like, does it happen all the time or is, is this unique? in government bids. You know, I, it's not an area that I have directly been involved with to know. Um, I did work for a government contractor for a while uh, in overseas in the war zone. And uh, I know there was definitely some improprietaries around that contract <laughs> that I can't, I don't really want to talk about. But uh, there's definitely, I, there are some shenanigans that happen in government contracting. And that's part of the corruption issues that happen in the government sometimes. But uh yeah, it's it's more surprising than I thought it would be. Yeah, so the target would be that you know they're they're sticking in uh, requirements that they know only one vendor can meet, even if those aren't real requirements, right? I haven't seen any details. There's no specific examples of of things which were included in the contract which nobody else can meet. And if they were if they were there and totally not legitimate, then then sure that's a problem. But if the requirements were things which really do separate the level of service that a particular provider could could give, then it seems reasonable that it's in there. Oh, what kind of things would you put into a government bid for cloud services? And uh, you know, I should probably pull the Jedi contract up, but you know, are they being as specific as, you know, you must have an automation language such as CloudFormation to automate your infrastructure's code, or is it more benign than that? Like, you know, you need to have a certain region in a certain region of the world <laughs> that only Amazon has. Like, how specific is it, actually? Well, I think there's a couple of um, compliance requirements that they, that they meet certain requirements that today only Amazon meets. Although I think the bid allows you to meet those requirements within you know, 90 or 180 days. I'm not sure what it was. Uh, in which case, I don't see why it would stop any vendor from moving forward with the bid unless they thought they couldn't meet those requirements in that much time. If it's a FedRAMP requirement, FedRAMP requires um, significant amount of investment in time and sponsorship by another government agency to even start the process. And then once you have your accreditation with that one government agency, then you can now become FedRAMP certified and start selling to the other government agencies. So while 
100 to 180 days might sound like a long time. It actually really isn't in some of the compliance requirements of the government and the federal government in particular. I'm usually really skeptical about these these stories. And I don't know if the kind of people who are going to be skilled enough and experienced enough to make good decisions on behalf of the government or on behalf of AWS or any any provider, the people who are experts in cloud computing and infrastructure services, it seems kind of natural that they're the kind of people that are going to move between different roles and different organizations. And sure, on the surface of it, moving, moving to the government and back again, it seems kind of fishy, but lots of people move back and forth between positions, especially in that kind of executive leadership. Yeah, and how many how many contracts, federal contracts, over the last twenty years has Oracle won because there's a requirement, a unique requirement for a database platform that Oracle, as the leader in the space, was the only one who could offer in their current product? I'm sure it's happened before. Well, and how many times has a company hired a formal general? Uh, to now be part of their executive team in the interest of helping to sweeten the deal so they yeah. get the bid. There, there's a ton of evidence of you know some weird shenanigans happening in the government. It's a developing story. I think it will continue to develop once the government reopens in 2019. And uh, as we head into later in this year, we'll see what happens with this case. But you know, it may just be smoke still, but uh, there's definitely been a lot of interesting articles coming out about this uh, that you can read about in the show notes. So the other uh, topic we spoke about in a few episodes again uh, was about the uh, Kafka community licensing announcement. And this was regarding um, Kafka and Mongo and Elasticsearch and others basically changing their community licensing from either the GPL or the Apache 2 Foundation licenses over to, you know, basically a community edition license, which prevents the hyperscalers, Amazon, Google, and Azure from developing commercial services with some of the components. And, you know, our question we asked on the, on the podcast was, you know, is is this really what's the value of our cloud providers and what should they be doing to support these open source companies? And we were looking at more from the source code perspective and, you know, are these companies not sharing back their code? But it's actually been a really more interesting story than that. And it's a fundamental story around the, what's the business model of open source need to be for these companies to be successful. And there's been a lot of really great thinking and blog posts in the last few weeks about what needs to happen in open source to make them sustainable. And so Adam Jacobs, who's the CTO of Chef, uh, who I've seen speak a couple of times, you know, he had some tweets and, and wrote a whole blog post about the need for a sustainable, free open source community, uh, and even created a sustainable, free and open source community group, working group to basically start kind of thinking about these principles and what they mean. So it's a much bigger question, actually. And as you look at what happens with a open source project that its commercial viability becomes port and enterprise features in these areas, do they need to protect their business model from the hyperscaler who could come in and potentially build the same capabilities and undercut their service model? Now, I also think there's a question about choice and do you want to limit choice to be only the SaaS platform of someone like Confluent? And do I really want to be able to use other providers to have the same capabilities? And I think this is actually a bigger question of how do these open source communities start surviving in a world where traditionally the business model that was on-premise is now more and more SaaS services or platform services? Um, and really, where does this go from here? Yeah, and I mean, it kind of makes the assumption. So w what happens with this? So if we take the Confluent license specifically, they're effectively carving out the uh, managed hosted uh, SaaS offering of their technology for themselves. And uh, prior to SaaS being an offering, there was plenty of open source companies who found revenue models other than that. So I think it is kind of interesting that um, it's not really uh, 
debate about open source in general because open source communities have uh, thrived in areas where there wasn't a backing company offering a SaaS solution for it. Kind of reminds me of the, the lawsuit between Oracle and Google over the Java APIs. The community licenses, I think it kind of muddies the waters a little bit about about what exactly is open. And if the developers looked at the code, which is open source, but only for community use, and then gets hired by uh, you know Amazons or the Googles of this world, and then has to re-implement the same functionality in, in a closed source way, it just seems like it's going to open a huge can of worms for, for lawsuits around uh, you know stealing somebody else's code or about misuse of intellectual property. I, don't, I think it's a terrible idea. I wish they could find a better solution to the problem. Yeah, and I think it goes back to the question of you know what is the business models for these companies? If if I can go get Kafka on Amazon directly and I can use that service and I don't need the SaaS offering, I would still like to be able to use the enterprise features though. Like I would like to be able to buy those on Marketplace and be able to tie them to my managed Kafka instance. Um, so I think there are business models that work in the cloud. I think it's really on Amazon and Azure and Google to be open to those relationships and how do they make their managed service available in a commercial way as well. And I think that's an area that the cloud providers need to think about and invest in some ways. But you know, also the other side of it is I hate paying for an enterprise license for open source that is for high availability in multi-regions or for having a reliable DR strategy. To me, that's just such a cop out of a feature. I'm like, I, I'm willing to pay for features that add a ton of value, or you know, analytics or reporting or things that you know are beyond the basic functionality of the service. But when you tell me that, hey, I can't run this component in a high available mo- model uh, unless I want to write my own code, or pay you guys hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, it kind of makes me grumpy. I, I really dislike that that particular open source money model. I, I'm fine paying for support. I'm fine paying for features that are differentiated. But if you're making me pay for HA or multi-region or disaster recovery, uh, you know, please don't do that. <laughs> well, you know, you, uh, you mentioned the, the cloud providers being open to the model, and I think they are open to it. And I think they're doing it already in many ways. I mean, if you look at how, the, how WAF has come around um, and AWS WAF, uh, it makes so much sense to get WAF from Amazon and let them uh, stick it on the edge at you know the CloudFront layer. Uh, and there's that there's a whole community of WAF providers who are offering pretty intelligent uh, WAF features and rule sets that are managed. And so you know Amazon opened that up to where okay now you can use Amazon's WAF, but pay for uh, managed rule sets on it from these security companies where that's really the value they're adding. And so I, I don't see why they couldn't extend that model to things like Kafka and enterprise features of op- managed open source uh, SaaS offerings. It's something Marketplace should be able to support and do. And I think that's where the model needs to be you know, figured out. Um, I think Amazon needs to start working with one of these vendors who's already announced this kind of hostile approach uh, and see if they can come up with terms in a, in a service that you know meets the needs. Maybe it's Mongo, maybe it's Kafka, maybe it's Elasticsearch, I don't know. But um, I would love to see you know, these providers start offering something that makes it work and that makes these, these open source guys happy. Because I think a lot of times their SaaS services are running on top of Amazon too. It's definitely in their best interest to be frenemies. But if you can make it win-win for both, I think that's even better. Yeah, I mean, frenemies. if they can do it, if they can host a successfully come up with a model where they're hosting... MS SQL Server, I'm sure they can come up with a model where they're hosting Kafka. 
I hope to see something in 2019 or you know some movement in the right direction on this, but definitely going to be interesting. Speaking of AWS, stay up to date with the latest AWS news every Monday morning with the Last Week in AWS newsletter. Corey Quinn gathers the news from AWS, strips out the stuff that nobody cares about, and makes fun of what's left. Subscribe today at lastweekinaws.com. Snark delivered to your inbox. Less fog, more cloud. Let's talk about the new Amazon client VPN service, uh, which allows you to securely access your Amazon and your on-premise resources, their new managed client VPN service. This is cool. I think this has been waiting for Transit Gateway to come along so that we could have this transitive routing between um, the Amazon client VPN and, and the data center and other VPCs. It's a long time coming. I think it's just a open VPN managed by Amazon. Integrates with Active Directory through the Amazon Directory service for authentication or certificate-based authentication. It's um, it's pretty good. I hope it meets the requirements of uh, security in the enterprise. You know, something that almost every single one of our customers has up and running on an EC2 instance right now in their VPC in order to get um, client-based access. But then now you've got this security edge device that needs to be managed. Uh, and so it's it was so ripe for being replaced with a managed service because nobody wants to be responsible for patching and managing um, something that is that important to security. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of interested in this one as well because it's one of the last few bastions that kind of lives in your private data center or in your pop location if you're going with a more modern uh, SaaS architecture for your network edge. I think you were typically deploying an appliance of some sort, that's your VPN entry point, and then you're going across a direct connect to Amazon. And if that was really your one use case, that's a pretty expensive solution. Um, so I, I'm glad to see this service as well. I think it starts kind of eliminating some of those last few things that live on premise. Um, I don't know, you know, if there's always a need for a VPN. I still am a bit of a fan of the Bastion host concept on demand over a VPN, but um, there are a lot of enterprises who are moving their core services to Amazon, and this is a great solution for that need if you want to do that securely. Yeah, and for us, it's workers. been, you know, people who have legacy tools that developers use on their laptops that they just can't run on a Bastion. The other solution to that I've typically seen used is workspaces. That seems to solve that challenge as well, especially now you can do both Linux workspaces as well as Windows workspaces. Yeah, but I mean, there have been lots of things that we've had a tough time running on a workspaces box since it's not a true Windows desktop operating system. That's still server behind the scenes where certain software just had a really difficult time installing and running. So I think it's a good... Uh, crossover. But then I, I love the way Google's looking at this as far as, you know, let's just not trust the network. Your endpoints become all effectively public using proxies to authenticate. But I do think it's an interesting point um, around their theory on networks and how their Google proxy works in front of applications. There's, there's less and less need for VPN. I mean, you, you get logging agents installed. If you need to debug things, the log should already be popping up into Elasticsearch or Splunk, whatever it is you use. I mean, the, the, the need to actually log in and tweak things should be diminishing on a, on a week-by-week basis the more we use automation to do deployments. And there's definitely a use case for it as much as you know, we preach the infrastructure as service message and that that's the future and you should be doing that. There, there are those scenarios where you, know, you still have to go log into a box and figure out that, oh, uh, yeah, I, I type out something. The flip side of this is thinking about this as a VPN into the VPCs. I mean, you could equally use it to replace Cisco Interconnect and other type on-prem VPN solutions that you have for external access back into your data center through an Amazon VPC. We already said it supports Active Directory plugins. It supports role-based policies as well. So maybe that's worth looking at as a way to eliminate 
in a data center cost. Be really interesting to see if they continue to extend um, the VPN capability to tie into IAM, and so that they could do something like dynamic security group allocations, where if I'm an X user and I have these permissions to these subnets that it then plums that connectivity in um, when I connect, and then when I'm not connected, it tears that down. That would be really actually kind of cool. Oh, a social security group of of a VPN client. I think that'd be really cool. That would, yeah. In December, Google talked uh, released an interesting blog post around container security, and so you know they're now offering a service to do patching of what they're calling a new managed base image. And so you know, those who are doing containers and are aware of container issues, uh, one of the challenges is that you start with a CentOS image or you start with an Alpine Linux image, which is really small, um, and you install your tooling on that, you know, your your prerequisites, you know, if it's Java or JDK, whatever, uh, then you install, install your application bits, and then that becomes your Docker container. And so that Docker container then has to be ran. And that over time, what occurs is that you get bit rot um, in your container. And so Google is basically saying, you know, now we're going to basically give you the ability to publish your Docker file, which is how you typically would do this, but also we'll give you a managed Alpine image or a managed CentOS image that we continuously keep patched and up to date. And then that will allow you to use that to trigger a build of your Docker file to do your prerequisites. And that will help eliminate some of the container rot problems that people typically deal with in containers. So this is interesting. This is some technology they've had for a while. They wrote a whole blog post about how to do it properly and, and what their best practices are around that. There's also a lot of interesting companies in the container space um, doing security like Twistlock and Aqua Security who are trying to solve this container um, security problem. But I, I do like the solution from Google. Um, it ties in nicely with their Kubernetes stack, of course. And it's, it's nice improvement, a nice article. Yeah, I mean, I think anytime you can eliminate uh, effectively toil, uh, all, of the, uh, all of the work that nobody wants to do and let one company do it for everybody. I think it's great. I think they're going to, um, people are going to value it most if it does things like help them be PCI compliant. So, you know, if there's, if they're going to set um, standards to how often they're patched to, you know, ensuring that the current image goes, you know, green on all the current uh, CVEs, then great. I think I'd like it more if there's a way to baseline these images or, you know, at least test these images later to make to, to, to see exactly what compliance requirements they're meeting. What have they tweaked? What have they set? And once I've applied my, my own Docker file to this, have I undone any of those protections? How do I know that the, the, you know, the final output is still as good as it should be without any kind of testing framework? I mentioned Twistlock and Aqua. They're providing you that basically that container runtime security layer. And so they're basically looking at what the container is is what it's comprised of and what the base image is. And they then track the CVEs published against that code. Uh, and they'll basically start flagging it and they'll give you a score. And so if if you have policies in place for your container instance host that says, you know, I can't run any container that's less than a score of six, for example, you know, the image when it first gets built and goes through your, your Jenkins pipeline, for example, will get built, get tested and gets a score of nine. And you're like, good to go. Uh, it goes into production and then, you know, next week uh, they come out with some zero-day hack against the Java library you're using. That now may be a sub five from the security people, and so then that grades it down to a two. And then basically, what Aqua or Twistlock would do basically say that container can't run. Um, you can't run more of them, and that becomes an issue. And you potentially have automation in place that would then replace that container. Um, when that CVE got patched. Uh, and so there's a lot of automation you can use to kind of manage this and what you should be doing, but I'm not sure everyone in the container space is getting to that level of maturity yet. But that's definitely where you're trying to get to and where you're trying to drive your container security story. But anything they can do to help simplify that story, I think, as Peter mentioned, reducing toil is is a nice thing to do in operations, especially uh, where you know we have a lot of other things to worry about than patching up your container. 
So, uh, you know, as all, all good podcasts do here at the uh, beginning of a new year, uh, I like to pull out my crystal ball and start looking at what the future holds, or what at least I think the future might hold. Um, and so I've lined up some predictions around what I think might happen in 2019. Uh, I know Peter has a couple and Jonathan does as well. So let's uh, do our best predictions for the year. So my, my big prediction for 2019 is I think this is the year we're going to start seeing consolidation in the smaller cloud providers. Um, this would be someone like a Linode or DigitalOcean or a Vulture, um, who's basically has really good traction in the developer community, has really built a lot of trust and a lot of foundations. And I think their ability to grow is somewhat limited by the fact they're not a hyperscaler. But if you start combining several of these smaller cloud providers together um, and really provide a really fantastic developer user experience, that that might become an interesting path to growth for them and eventually make them a potential fourth or fifth player in the cloud space. So I, I wouldn't be surprised to start seeing some consolidation in the space, especially if we hit some economic headwinds. You know, I don't know how well these guys are doing financially, but I wouldn't be surprised to see them get picked up or merge with another company uh, to really start seeing that consolidation happen. Yeah, especially if you look at some of the uh, cloud players who have the, the financial means to invest heavily uh, and are are currently not in the conversation, uh, picking up a, a great user experience and then scaling that be super cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I love DigitalOcean, for example. Um, I've used them in the past. I don't have anything running on there now, but their UI is really simple. It's super clean, super fast as a developer. Uh, it makes me super happy. I don't have to think really hard about making it work. Um, and they've slowly added features over the last few years around firewalling and additional things that look like VPCs. Um, so they're all trying to move into a more enterprise space and to more things. But I, I don't know if any one of them on their own has enough to stand up and become a, a number four or number five player in the big cloud market um, without consolidation. But I definitely think there's opportunities for all of them. And so I'd like to see them continue to grow and be strong players. And that might require some some mergers and acquisitions to occur. All right. Uh, mine is is uh, less risky. Um, but uh, we right now, we basically see the uh, uh, this battle between or with people who are looking at you know, how are we going to deploy our microservice-based uh, application architecture? And the two models are sort of, you know, some people go in the direction of uh, containerizing their apps, uh, at their microservices, and others go in the direction of building serverless architecture on a single cloud and going cl- with all benefiting from all their cloud native server, uh, cloud native services on that platform. So, you know, we've got the Kubernetes proliferation happening, um, all the providers offering their managed uh, managed uh, offerings. Uh, and then we've got uh, all these serverless cloud native services. I guess my prediction is going to be that we're going to see the, uh, the container-based model uh, continue to accelerate a bit faster than the cloud native serverless model. Do you have any indicators that make you think that's the case or just a hunch? Right now, our guys who are best at Kubernetes are the most exhausted. So <laughs> all our customers are asking for the same people for projects migrating, um, you know, migrating from Heroku to EKS or or doing other uh, type of uh, initiatives on containerizing apps and figuring out how to use some of these managed services or building Kubernetes clusters on top of cloud infrastructure. You think that's because less work, less transformation is needed 
to move to a containerized system than to a you know a serverless implementation. Maybe I mean I think that maybe it's uh, ground up. So I think that a lot of these companies get introduced to containers not based on some grandmaster plan on how to deploy to production, but based on the developers using the technology to make it easier for them to develop and then hand something off uh, to production later. So it's you know it's 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 already a container now. Why not just use it? And then I think the other area would be the con the concept of do we want to get um, you know do we want to look at sticking with one cloud provider and going with these cloud native services, or do we want to be portable? And you know if if you don't have the real numbers in front of you to say, dude, I did the testing cloud native. I did the testing container based cloud native wakes makes way more sense, which I think in a lot of cases it does. Um, but if you don't have that in front of you, you're going to say, oh yeah, I'll take the portable solution over the non-portable solution. I still think we have the challenge that developers haven't fully grasped what eventing is <laughs> and what that means in a Lambda or serverless space, right? And so you know, rewriting your app to be event-driven versus being a listening protocol or something. I think there's still a lot of disconnect between what makes a good microservice versus what makes a good serverless application. And um, I think what you're seeing is developers are continuing to go with what they're more comfortable with, which is container-based. Um, but containers still have the overhead of security, the cost nightmares of EC2 instances or Putin instances in general. And I think while there's a lot of really interesting solutions you can do with serverless, it is a paradigm shift. And so I think it's similar to service-oriented architecture in that it's going to take longer for companies to get there, but when they get there, they're going to be happier. I wonder if Amazon's releasing um, Firecracker as open source is going to level the playing field a little bit in this regard then, because now you can run event-driven serverless apps locally um, much more easily. I always get the feeling with all of these new layers of abstraction or models that we're, we're really good at identifying areas of where there's a lot of complexity. Um, and then we come up with solutions, but all we really do is move the complexity somewhere else. I kind of feel like that with these technologies as well. We talked about the managed base images from Google for EKS just a few minutes ago. I mean, with Lambda, I don't need to worry about that at all. Amazon managed the, the entire container for me. I just upload the code. That's true. I mean, it's, it's definitely a simpler scenario. Although with the new serverless layers, Maybe that starts making it a little bit more complicated because now you're thinking about prerequisites as a layer that I'm adding on top of it. And it's not quite just run my code. It's now run my prerequisites and my code. And now I have to think about it from a more container-based perspective anyways. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I understand why your your Kubernetes people are really tired, Peter. I mean, that's, that's a lot of YAML, a lot of spaces they had to type out. Don't forget the spaces. <laughs> Don't forget the spaces. When I think of DevOps in the cloud, I think of Foghorn Consulting. Foghorn has been around since 2008. They've been on the forefront of cloud enablement and have delivered powerful transformations for hundreds of clients from startups to Fortune 500, including highly regulated industries. They were early visionaries and practitioners of using code to automate infrastructure and operations to drive up cloud efficiencies while driving down costs. Terraform, Ansible, Jenkins, AWS, Asia and GCP. Go to fogops.io slash thecloudpod to learn more about their fogops services and sign up for a free, well-architected framework review. So my 2019 prediction w would have been my 2018 prediction if, if we'd be doing the show back then. Slack. Slack is just primed to be picked up by somebody any minute now. But you know, Slack have got 70,000 paying customers now. 
Uh, they've just bought HipChat and they're shutting down that service and migrating everybody over to their own platform. And there doesn't really seem to be another good competitor in the market for enterprise communication. It's just it's just ripe for the picking. Somebody somebody's going to pick them up. Whether it's Amazon, um, I'm really not sure, but they're expensive though. That's that's the problem. You know, seven eight billion dollars is pretty pricey for a, a, a instant messaging platform. People who are much smarter than I in the market are saying that you know they're most likely going to IPO in 2019, and so. Uh, you know, if the if the IPO happens early enough, and if their numbers don't make sense to the street, and they are depressed stock wise, it you know maybe it happens. Um, I I think I would have called you silly in 2018 if you made this prediction. I think I'm going to call you silly again in 2019. That <laughs> I don't I don't see this happening, but if it does, you know I I will I will owe you some some alcoholic beverages <laughs> in victory of this one. Uh, but uh, you know I bold move bold move Jonathan. If it does happen, though, I think I think it would be super cool if uh, Microsoft ended up being able to buy them after that open letter came out. That would be uh, that would be pretty cool. Wow, that would be quite the story. If uh, if Microsoft bought Slack, that would be uh, that'd be very impressive. I did I did find out the other day actually from one of my Amazon friends that uh, you know I said, well, don't you guys use Slack internally? I said, no, no, we use Chime, and I was like, oh. I'm sorry. <laughs> he said, no, no, we're sorry every day. And I, I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> uh, but uh, maybe maybe Amazon will finally uh, kill Chime. Maybe that, maybe that was my 2019 prediction because uh, that, that service is rough. Yeah. I questioned why they bought that in the first place. Well, I, th- I think they uh, it's all about going up the stack, Jonathan, and that's where we're, we're heading. But uh, well, all right. Well, Jonathan, we'll see if you win. If, uh, if any of us uh, are victorious in our 2019 prediction, I think we'll... We'll all quit instantly and buy uh, lottery tickets, uh, <laughs> but uh, we'll definitely find out. It'll be interesting. Twenty nineteen. I'm looking forward to it. I got a twenty nineteen hope. I got a twenty nineteen oh. hope. Oh, a hope. Yeah. Okay. I'm hoping that the price of Japanese whiskey goes down in twenty nineteen. And why are you hoping it goes down? Have you seen how expensive Japanese whiskey has gotten over the last couple of years? But it's not. It's not good though. <laughs> if you want to spend money, okay, no, no Japanese no whiskey Japanese for you. Whiskey for me, that's fine. <laughs> if you want to spend money on whiskey, buy good whiskey. Ah, oh, man, I love Japanese whiskey. I, I apparently am not well versed in Japanese whiskey to know if it's good or not. Uh, I, I'll stick with the European stuff. I think. <laughs> there you go. All right, all right. Well, I, I we'll see if that hope happens. That might be maybe what you owe Jonathan. If Jonathan has Slack at purchase, maybe you owe him Japanese whiskey. <laughs> Perfect. Then I get to and I get to drink it since he doesn't like it. Win, win, win. Excellent. All right. Well, that's uh, that's definitely going to be exciting. Let's see where we end up in 2019. Uh, I'm excited with the podcast and, and what we're doing here. I think uh, it'll be a fun year, and I'm definitely looking forward to it. So we'll turn it over to our fearless lightning round leader, Peter. All right. Number one on the list, Cloud Spanner adds enhanced query introspection, new regions, and new multi-region configurations. More features for Cloud Spanner. So it, it actually does multi-region now because that was the big joke of it originally. Was It was the multi-region database that you could only get in one region. <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> Until I run it, I don't believe it. <laughs> Azure Backup can now automatically protect new SQL databases. So again, if anyone was going to build this service, it would be Microsoft. Uh, and I can't believe it wasn't in the last lightning round that this was part of that announcement. God, I feel like it was. No, that was that you could do Azure backups Azure. of SQL Server with Azure Backup. This is that you can protect your new SQL database schemas you added to that instance automatically. 
Isn't that amazing? That's awesome. Yeah. So, Incredible. so be, before this announcement, which is only three weeks after the last announcement, uh, you would have to manually tell Azure Backup to back up the new database you just created on the database server they're already backing up. Amazon Transcribe now supports speech in uh, speech to text in French, Italian, and Brazilian Portuguese. <laughs> Excelente. Just uh, hello. Omo plata. See how many people know what that word means. All right. Amazon EC2 introduces partition placement groups. So uh, I always thought this is hilarious because placement groups mean you want them very close together, but partition means you want them not close together. So it'll be interesting to see how they make that happen. I mean, I, I'm sure these HPC people get super excited about this. I just, I can't do it. It's, it's about the most uncloud like thing you can do. Yeah, but it's fast. It's fast. All right. Um, workload qualification framework for database migration from uh, Amazon's DMS. What we have here is a problem of acronyms. I have no idea what this WQF framework is against the DMS framework and the RDS database and Aurora. I don't have a clue what's happening here. More tools to help people move from Oracle to AWS. That's all you got to know. All right. Uh, AWS Route 53 supports alias records for API gateway and VPC endpoints. This is cool. I've been looking forward to this for a while. So you don't pay for the lookup. You don't pay for you know per transaction for the for the second lookup with alias. It's not recursive. It's it does the the recursiveness on the back end very fast. Save 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 a tenth of a penny. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> All right. Amazon Connect adds real time customer voice streaming. This is their call center product. It's, it's going to be a pretty big brother. Now we can do real-time sentiment analysis or real-time uh, you know, lie detection for insurance claims, that kind of thing. But they couple it with their you know, recognition service. They can now watch you walk down the street talking to Comcast and know exactly how you feel about that call. <laughs> that shouldn't be too tough. I can tell you right now what everybody thinks who's walking down the street talking to Comcast. <laughs> <laughs> RDS for SQL Server now supports M5 instance classes. Anything? Anyone? I, I didn't know Crickets. Windows was supported on M5 instances. So, I mean, that's, I guess, a win. I, it's weird to me that we even have to have this announcement. Did something change with the M5s to make it possible? I, last time I tried to run a Windows instance on the M5, I was told I couldn't do it. So I, I haven't tried in a while. I thought something, I thought we talked about something changing on the M5s from a virtualization standpoint. Well, I mean, it's using the Nitro hypervisor on the uh, the ASIC chips that they bought from Annapurna Labs. If I follow through Jonathan's uh, 20, best of 2018 feedback. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Can't believe you remember every one of those words. I, I, All right, I uh, struggled for a moment. <laughs> Luckily, we have these show notes like, uh, to help remind me. <laughs> exactly. EFS gets a 99.9% service level. Ah, so in Amazon speak, that means it's now general available. Perfect. <laughs> Do they have a performance uh, level guarantee yet? I'm not sure. I don't think I've seen a performance level guarantee. That would be yeah. that would be crackers. Like that makes no sense. <laughs> and then, <laughs> then when the when the service goes down, it'll actually only be degraded. It won't be down. So the service level is ir you know irrelevant because the service is functioning just at higher error rates. Cool. That is it for the lightning round. Thank you for participating. Should we give a winner every week? Oh, a winner. We should give a winner. A winner. The best lightning round item. Best lightning round item? Or the best lightning, uh, lightning round, you know, quip. 
No, best lightning round contributor. Well, I contributed all of them. <laughs> One of us, yeah, but you got to contribute good stuff. And I, since I'm the owner of the lightning round, I get to pick. All right, fair enough. But I'm gonna give, I'm gonna give this week's winner, even though I can give it to myself. That's part of the rules. Um, I'm gonna give it to Justin. Justin had topped off with that great EFS comment. You're the winner. <laughs> I mean, you you might have clued, you know, keyed that up for me earlier, and, and I'm not gonna tell any secrets. But <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks, Peter. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Foghorn Consulting, LastWeekInAWS.com, and The Cloud Pod. Please rate us on iTunes or Google Play Store. Your feedback helps us improve the show. 